When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdel-Jabbar. Danny, you're back. I'm back. How you doing, man? You were in New York, and you didn't even call me. I know. <laughs> well, you weren't even in the city. You were in Long Island, so I, I have an excuse. I still would have liked a call. <laughs> All right, next It time. would have been nice to get a call. I know that you're busy. I know that you came here and you were busy and you were seeing family, but it still would have been nice to get a call that you're in town. Oh, well, I'll have to change my ways, Henry. I forgive you. I forgive you. Sounds the world good. doesn't revolve <laughs> around me. Um, but what's up, man? How are you? I haven't. I feel like I haven't talked to you in a couple of weeks. I know. Chilling, man, as per usual. Um, just, uh, as you said, got back in from New York, did a wedding, saw Rammstein in concert, which was incredible, which, by the way... Uh, their set was kind of interesting because they had this like what looked like a cathedral or like a you know like they're standing in front of a you know uh, an old you know building but with like all these red lasers and shit and I couldn't help but see the similarity with you know that Biden speech that he gave recently dark Brandon (laughs) where he's in front of that red background it looked exactly like that and I was like bugging out I'm like wait is this like on purpose? <laughs> so, was that intentional? <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't because they've had this this set for a little while. But um, I, I just I gotta send you some video, man. It looks exactly like it, and I was like, oh shit, it's weird. Maybe maybe that's where the Biden team got their inspiration for. <laughs> they went to a Rammstein show, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this would look really cool as a as a as a backdrop for his presidential speech. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's make it super metal man <laughs> well it was pretty metal looking so <laughs> i'll give props to biden's team um okay so since we last uh well past couple of days we were given the unfortunate news that the queen has passed away i know i know i can't say i'm sad about it she lived a long and, and fruitful life so you know it was gonna happen one way or another well, I'll tell you what, I kind of felt, uh, I was sadder than I thought I was going to be. I had a feeling, you know, I had heard things about the Queen's health over the past year, and she had COVID not so long ago, and um, I think a lot of people were expecting her time to end soon, and um, I was actually a lot sadder than I thought I was. It was kind of strange, because... Think about it. We're in our early 30s, and she's been a consistent factor. Like, she's just always been the queen since we were born. Well, that was the same case for our parents. She's been queened for 70... Well, she was queen for 70 years. So A lot of people have lived and died under one queen, so... Yeah. 
So I kind of felt bad in that regard where, yeah, she lived a long life and, and uh, you know, it's I, I really can't find anything negative to say about her. Um, so, She's a colonizer. <laughs> dude, don't get me started on that. The people who are online and they're pretending like the queen or, or acting, they're they're saying like very repugnant things about this this woman who who recently passed away. Saying like, oh, she's an imperialist pig. She deserved to die. The world is a better place without the monarch. The, she's not making policies. Like, the monarch doesn't make policy in the UK. She's not making foreign policy decisions. Like, hmm, we're going to have to plant a false flag in this, to cause a crisis in, this, in the Suez Canal to overthrow Nasser. That's not her policies. And I'm just like puzzled why people are projecting all this uh, negative negativity and, and trying to dance on her grave. I feel it's very unwarranted, and yeah, it's, um, it's misplaced anger, really. You know, it, it, so. it's very much mis, misplaced anger. And there's this like mean these pictures going along uh, on around online of the Queen um, at the same. She's in. There's a picture of Epstein and and uh, Maxwell at some cabin, and there's like a picture next to it of the queen at the same cabin. What what does that even mean? So they went to go. They're both rich and powerful people at the time. And they, they went, went to the, to same, the place. same cabin at one time and had the same picture. Doesn't mean they were together. And you know all the things with like the Epstein with her um with with Prince Andrew right um being in like the Epstein bracket. I I it's not her fault. Like she <laughs> yeah, right. wasn't in the Epstein bracket herself. Like, yeah, she had a, she has a fuck up son. You know, obviously that's a huge embarrassment for the family. And they tried to some degree, pro, you know, cover what they could up. But I don't know. I think it's misplaced anger. And I felt bad for like my, um, my mom, uh, my in-laws are like really fascinated with the British Royal family you know, they love reading all the books that come out them and all like the juicy kind of tabloid gossip that comes out about the royal family. I mean, they they're upset. And then I see all these people who are like crying in front of Buckingham Palace. It's kind of sad. It's like a, a, a symbol, a person who's a symbol of national unity. It, it really means kind of like the end of an era. Um, so I don't know. I felt well, there's the a, there's a, the fears now sorrow that... with the Queen's passing. Yeah. R.I.P. Well, there's the fears now that uh, King Charles um, is the king. Uh, apparently, the last two Charleses both dissolved Parliament for a bit. So now they're like, oh, he's going to dissolve Parliament. <laughs> I don't think King Charles is going to make any power moves. <laughs> um, the, the funny joke that I've been hearing, though, is that the the queen uh, took one look at uh, Liz Truss as prime minister and decided that it's time to go. <laughs> like she wants, She's out now. <laughs> Just like, I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. Liz, Liz Truss just it reminds me of a British Hillary Clinton. <laughs> but I digress. Um, I guess other big things in the news right now, and I know we're concentrating on Taiwan, but um, I guess we would be called out if we didn't bring it up. There was a huge counteroffensive in the war in Ukraine where uh, it looks like the Ukrainians took back a significant amount of territory near Kharkiv. So I guess it's Saturday at uh, 4.27 p.m. as the situation is still unfolding. But 
it looks like it's pretty much confirmed the Russians made a full retreat out. So I guess we'll see what happens there. But my major fear is that there's going to be like an increase in the, uh, the, the war effort on the Russia side because this special operation is definitely not what the Russian people uh, signed up for. This kind of limit, like the way it was sold as a limited thing. If they're defending lines with uh, with a couple of militia guys, because apparently it was it was a uh, you know it was guys from the Luhansk uh, militia who were on the front line there, and they kind of melted away. The other, you know, I'm looking at Russian Telegram, and a lot of them are melting down, but then other ones are like, oh, this was a planned retreat that they're just trying to suck in the Ukrainian forces to put them in a kill zone. I don't know what's going on. And I would be lying if I said I had any type of uh, educated insight. Yeah, same. All right. So let's talk about Taiwan because I wanted to... This is actually a story from a couple of weeks ago. Actually, it was from July. And I'm not sure if we really had a chance to discuss this in detail. We may have brought it up. But the story about Nancy Pelosi making a trip to Taiwan. Did we ever talk about that? I don't think you and I did. Joe and I talked about it a bit on our episode when you were out on your honeymoon. Uh, But that's about it, though. Well, it's interesting because I think it kind of highlights a much stranger story. So my initial reaction with Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan with her trip um, was that it was actually kind of like a Biden policy thing. Um, at the very least, Xi Jinping would interpret it that way because she's of the same party as Joe Biden. So his, you know, the Chinese government's um, reaction would be like, okay, this is this is the United States going back on their one China policy. Now, her reason for her trip was to, uh, you know, quote unquote, show her support or show congressional support for Taiwan's democracy. Um, you know, democracy is always the kind of the buzzword that is thrown around for everything now, which which really upset China. Uh, the Chinese government said that her visit would undermine China's sovereignty, which seems like a pretty big deal. And um, they would respond with strong countermeasures if she were to go, which she did. And then that was followed by 11 other members of Congress in the following month. So on its face, it's not that interesting because... You know, members of the House, they go on these congressional delegations all the time. But the Biden administration, during this time, came out and said, no, don't do it. Don't do this. This is not smart. They came out and said the, the, the Pentagon is advising against it and they shouldn't do it. And I thought that they were full of crap at the time. I thought like, oh, that is just, this is just for show. But then I saw John Kirby, uh, the Pentagon press secretary, he came out and he made a, you know, he made it very clear in a speech that the U.S. stands by the one China policy. You know, the one China policy being is, you know, the, the government of Beijing is the legitimate government over China and Taiwan. There's one China. There's no Taiwan. The John Cena policy, the, the John Cena policy, that's what they should rename it. <laughs> and, you know, that's not the reality. I think everyone knows that's not the reality. The policy right now is that there's a game that's being played. It's a dance where China and Taiwan, they pretend to be the same country, but they're not at all the same country. Sometimes Taiwan will get a little uppity and, you know, they'll stop the role play. But at the end of the day, 
they always signal to China that they're willing to play along with, um, you know, this fantasy or this uh, make believe that you know they're they're the same government because they're clearly not the same government at all. Right. But they pretend to be the same government um, because of reasons, and you know that's the dance. You know, and in the U.S., the U.S. strategy is to say maybe we're playing along with the game, maybe we're not playing along with the game. Who knows? So in a nutshell, that's the the foreign policy issue we're dealing with. Nevertheless, it's a scary game to play. For sure. For sure. And, you know, when this came up, and I'm surprised that we haven't you know spoken about it at length, I, I always just kept asking myself, like, what's the issue with going to Taiwan anyway? You know, like, why, why is this such a big deal? And, you know, you said yourself, members of Congress visit you know, other countries all the time. And likewise, you know, pilots from other countries come to ours all the time. So it's kind of like standard practice here. And, you know, I, I was just curious. I, I checked and, you know, unlike countries like North Korea or, you know, places like that, as an example, Taiwan's pretty open for travel, you know, with the exception of some remnants of COVID restrictions that you can travel to or from Taiwan freely for leisure or study, business, whatever you want. Um, and nobody, not even China, is blocking anyone from coming or going to or from Taiwan. And, you know, so I start thinking about like, so why is this a big deal? People are going to Taiwan. You know, an argument that I hear a lot, in, and in particular from the episode I did with Joe, is that, you know, there's this gravity, you know, to people like Pelosi visiting any country. You know, she's the third in line in the U.S. Uh, right now. The, she is the same party as the president. So, you know, there's that kind of direct line. Um, and I can't deny that, that, that there is gravity. But the argument is to say that the mere presence of Pelosi in Taiwan due to her title signals that we're breaking the one China policy, right? Or at least that's how, like you said, she might interpret it. Um, and that that could be a problem. But like just thinking about it critically, functionally speaking, there's no, and, and we'll learn more about this in this episode, I'm sure, but there, whether or not Pelosi goes to Taiwan or not is kind of irrelevant in the grand scheme of things, foreign policy-wise, that is. You know, if, if we're moving away from the one China policy, like she believes that we're signaling with that visit, that's happening regardless if Pelosi physically goes to Taiwan or not. You know, like, just like a silly way to think about it is Taiwan has phones and the internet. You know, if, if COVID taught us anything, it's that you can do many things remotely. You don't have to, you know, you don't, you don't think that like Pelosi could have just jumped on a Zoom call with President Tsai and Wing, you know, but that, that's a possibility regardless if she went there or not. So what I'm, what I'm starting to sit on is that I, I think what it boils down to is like virtue signaling and what that virtue is that's being signaled by Pelosi's visit is different depending on who you ask, right? So, I mean, given that that it was the wish of Biden for Pelosi not to go, and the State Department, you know, reaffirmed very publicly its stance on the One China policy, why do you think Pelosi decided to go anyway? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. And what, what's really interesting is that um, the House as a whole has actually been much more adamant about um, Taiwanese independence and Taiwanese uh, aid and introducing Taiwan into, um, you know, security packs. Um, you know, there's a bill that was pushed by Bob Menendez um, 
I think it was co-sponsored by Lindsey Graham that would, or no, it was by uh, Bob Dominguez um, introduced a bill that would would recognize Taiwan as like a major non-NATO ally and just like, you know, further wrap them into different security guarantees. That, that's been coming a lot more from the House than it actually has been the than, than the executive branch from the Biden administration. It seems like, I know you can definitely argue this, but it seems like the, the, the actual, you know, the Pentagon and um, Biden's foreign policy team is actually signaling to Congress to, to cut it out, you know, cut it out like we're trying not to get this too unstable. And the answer is simple. It's money. So... Um, you know, Pelosi did not visit Taiwan as a representative of the Biden White House. She went her, went there on her own business trip to sell political influence. Now, she went there because of, of the Taiwan lobby. And there's a guy who I read. His name is Ben Freeman. He writes for the Quincy Institute, which is the uh, think tank that's head by uh, Trita Parsine and Andrew Basevich. And this guy, Ben Freeman, his specialty is investigating foreign influence on American politics. So he wrote a book called uh, The Foreign Policy Auction, uh, probably like around 10 years ago. But he's definitely one of the major specialists in this field and in, in, uh, foreign lobby and FAR registrations and things like that. Um, him, along with, um, with, with Grant Smith, who, who mainly focuses on the, on the uh, Israel lobby, John Mearsheimer actually wrote a book on the Israel lobby as well, but uh, I digress. When someone says uh, foreign influence, the average um, partisan Democrat or average partisan Republican, they think of two countries. You know, if you're a Democrat, you think that Putin is secretly pulling the strings of the Republican Party. And then if you're a Republican, you think the Democrats have been penetrated by the Chai Coms. It's funny how how that breaks down politically. I think you know, China and Russia are some pretty easy boogeymen for the topic of foreign influence because you know we have we have an adversarial relationship with them, or at least kind of adversarial. You know, just depends on who you ask. But you know, isn't the Israeli lobby like a much more impactful source of foreign influence than either China or Russia? Like, yeah, sure, they they rank seventh on the list of countries who spend money you know, to lobby since like 2016, but like dollar for dollar, they're making out really well. Israel's behind uh, Afghanistan only. So they're second and they're getting a whopping 3.3 billion in, in 2019. And this is after only spending 125 million since 2016. That's an awesome return on investment. And, you know, obviously there's also policy to cover, but I'm not going to go too much off, off the rails for that. Um, my point is that Americans are so focused on Russia and China that other foreign influence really just flies under the radar pretty easily. But I, I know you wanted to talk about lobbying, generally speaking, in the U.S. Uh, so tell us what you learned. Yeah, so um, it, it's it's that almost every country in the world will try to get access to our politicians um, or one of our think tanks. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great way to get favorable policy to, uh, towards them or one of their agendas. It's natural. Whenever there's a war that breaks out or a conflict that breaks out, the first thing that a country does or a rival side of a country will do is that they'll go to the United States to lobby. If you look at the war in Ethiopia, there's a big reason why 
there is definitely a lot more favorable media towards the Tigrayan side than the central government because the the, the Tigrayan side has more of a, a a presence in Washington. So that's like one of the first weapons that a country will utilize. Um, if you look at just the amount of money that Ukraine spent lobbying uh, prior to the war breaking out, it was millions upon millions of dollars. Lindsey Graham and and uh, John McCain had that famous 2017 meeting in Ukraine where Lindsey Graham's like, 2017 will be the year of offense. <laughs> we will go back to Washington and make the case for Ukraine. Ben Freeman, he writes a lot about the Ukraine lobby. He writes a lot about the lobby groups of various Gulf states. And he also covers the Taiwan lobby. So he recently wrote this article, how the Taiwan lobby helped pave the way for Pelosi's trip. And I'm going to read from it. If House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan this week is any indication, Taiwan's advocates in the U.S. are earning their paychecks. They helped to push through more than $5 billion in arms sales to Taiwan, in part by counting the offices of nearly none of all members of Congress in 2019, according to FARA filings. This included Taiwan's lobbyists contacting Speaker Pelosi's office 18 times and arranging a closed-door meeting between Pelosi and the President of Taiwan during the summer of 2019. See? Told you she didn't have to go to Taiwan. <laughs> she had a closed door meeting. Um, anyway, what what is what is Farah? Because that's that's a new word for me. So FAR or Farah, it, it stands for the Foreign Agents uh, Agents Registration Act. It imposes uh, disclosure requirements and other legal obligations on and on um, anyone who's working on behalf of a foreign agent. So, or foreign government, or uh, anyone who's related to like political objectives of a foreign country, and this was launched in response of um, basically foreign propaganda campaigns by the Germans um, in the United States right before World War II broke out. So, you're considered a foreign agent if you engage in political activities, if you um, you know provide certain public relations or or politically related services uh, if you solicit money. And, you know, take in mind that uh, FARA has exemptions. You know, there's all types of, like, legal gray areas that I don't really entirely understand. It seems, like, subjective at times of who's a FARA agent and who's not. But another issue is that FARA enforcement is known to be very lenient on the accuracy and the timeliness of reporting. So there's a lot of gray areas. Um, you know, they were uh, uh, John, my John Flynn, Mike Flynn's son was going to be prosecuted uh, for not registering as a as a Turkish uh, Turkish agent, Turkish agent mm -hmm. um, under under FAR guidelines. So there's all these gray areas, which 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 uh, you know leaves laws up to interpretations. But I'm going to get back to this article. More recently, Taiwan's lobbyists have continued to promote closer ties with the United States throughout uh, 2022. They've been lobbying to get the Biden administration to add Taiwan to the Indo-Pacific economic framework, including collecting signatures for a dear colleague letter from the Congressional Taiwan Caucus. 
Taiwan's agent also hyped a March 2022 trip of U.S. officials purportedly sent by President Biden to Taiwan. The size of the Taiwan lobby has grown in recent years from seven FAR registrants in 2022 to 12 today, and Taiwan has spent over $25 million since 2016 on these firms, according to the Open Secrets website. While that might seem like a lot, it pales in comparison to Taiwan's neighbors in the Asia-Pacific region, Japan and South Korea, each spent more than $200 million, and China spent a whopping $276 million in FAR registrants during the same time period. So, um, don't want to make it seem one-sided. China obviously also spends a ton of money in, in the United States to influence policy. So, I don't want to act like I'm being completely one-sided here. Um, but FAR registrants are just one part of the equation, as Taiwan's influence in D.C. is also aided by close ties and financial support for a number of Washington think tanks. Many of the nation's top think tanks, including the Brookings Institute, the Center for American Progress, and the Hudson Institute, have all received funding from the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office, TECRO, Taiwan's de facto embassy in the United States. These same think tanks often push for expanded arms sales and trade agreements, which Taiwan, without any widely disclosing their high-level funding from TECRO, according to Clifton. More recently, scholars at the same think tanks have received TECRO funding, have downplayed concerns about Nancy Pelosi's controversial trip to Taiwan. A Hudson Institute scholar, for example, argued that Newt Gingrich proved that despite CCP saber-rattling, the Speaker can visit Taiwan if he wants to. Decades later, Nancy Pelosi proved that is still true. Similarly, so I'm stop you right there. <laughs> that that there's another reason, right? I mean, I know I'm I'm kind of like at this point saying the same thing that Techro is is pushing, but it's kind of true, you know. Like, what's what's the difference if it's Newt Gingrich or Pelosi or whoever the fuck? Like, they're going one way or another. It's happening one way or another. So, got to make a big stink about it for no reason. <laughs> Anyway, well, I mean, the question, the question is, is why, why are they um, disbanding with a policy decision that's been going on for 30 years or 40 years? Well, that like, doesn't what, necessarily. Why are they, why are they throwing think, strategic ambiguity off the table or why are they um, countering the uh, values of strategic ambiguity? Or maybe you can make right. the case that's part of strategic ambiguity. To yeah, be I was, old I was just going to say and, that. I was just going to say that, like, you know, right now, if we never went to Taiwan, there would be no strategic ambiguity. We would be signaling to China that we only go to China, we only talk to China, and it's just China, right? So technically going furthers strategic ambiguity, although, you know, we have much more formal relationship and open relationship with China than we do with Taiwan, hands down, easily, even if even despite the fact that they're adversarial. So yeah, I just don't, I don't, I don't see the, the, I don't see the difference there going to, going to Taiwan or going to China. I guess what so the as far as like strategic ambiguity goes, you know, the, the ultimate level of strategic ambiguity is having one part of the government um, has one policy and the other part of the government has a different policy. That's, yeah, that's right. the ultimate, but I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's the White House who makes decisions on foreign policy mm-hmm. matters. Like the Congress doesn't mm-hmm. really have that much of a say um, when it comes to like military interventions and stuff. They'll vote anonymous. Uh, um, they'll, they'll vote yes on pretty much anything. Um, so 
Similarly, a Brookings scholar was dismissive of China's military exercises that were announced by Beijing in response to Pelosi's trip, telling CNBC they were just par for the course and that China exercises a lot of showmanship and exercises and shows of the force in the broader Western Pacific all the time. Just last week from Secretary of Defense Mark Esper spoke at the Atlantic Council, which also receives funding from TechRow, about a trip he and Atlantic Council delegation made to Taipei in mid-July. Esper argued that the U.S. should militarily defend Taiwan and just like Taiwan's lobbyists said Taiwan should be included in the Indo-Pacific economic framework. Furthermore, when meeting with, with the Taiwan president, Tsui Ing-wen, Esper called for a major shift in U.S. policy, a move away from strategic ambiguity, which experts say could set up a confrontation with China. It is my personal view that one China policy has outlived its usefulness, that it is time to move away from strategic ambiguity, he said in the July meeting. Tekro has claimed that it does not influence what experts publish, nor do we base funding decisions on what experts choose to write on, yet there's a pattern of the think tanks it funds being supportive of greater U.S. ties with Taiwan. It's also clear that Taiwan's registered foreign agents have helped to increase U.S. military and economic ties with Taiwan. This week, their efforts culminated by helping to pave the way for Pelosi's risky trip to Taiwan. This alone should merit greater attention on the impact this small but clearly powerful influence operation is having on U.S. foreign policy. See, and again, I think that's yet another um, point to my argument here. You know, what Art, what Esper is saying, you know, uh, this shift in U.S. policy away from strategic ambiguity, that happened here vis-a-vis -a, -vis a think tank, right? I'd argue that that is more dangerous than Pelosi going to peddle political influence in Taiwan because... Pelosi didn't come out and say, oh, yeah, we're going to go against strategic amb ambiguity. She didn't say we're going to, you know, arm Taiwan. But Esper did. So, I mean, you know, and this is coming from the, the think tank, you know, and, and the Atlantic Council is funded by Tecro. So does that mean that think tanks are also foreign agents in that way? Yes. The answer is yes. I mean, think tanks act in the interest to, to whoever is funding them, really. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they're not really independent voices. I mean, think about it. If somebody like some government just gave us like $5 million. Of a, gave bro history $5 million? Bro, bro history. Let's just say if Taiwan gave us $5 million. Not even. <laughs> let's just say if they gave us $100,000 or five. Let's say half a million dollars. Shit, like, if they gave me five thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, if they gave us five hundred bucks. If they gave us fifty dollars. If they subscribe to our Patreon. If they subscribe to our Patreon for five dollars, we would give favorable coverage to Taiwan. We would be like, hey, China is acting belligerently. There is one China, and that one China is Taiwan, the government in Taipei, who should take the mainland. <laughs> the Beijing government is into the illegitimate. Get the reds, the communist red pigs. They will pay. Um, that, that's that's how. That's, that's how, how it works. Money. That's how much we, we're we're selling ourselves for a subscription on Patreon. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, But yeah, um, think tanks, they act in the interest of who's funding them. So to, um, you know, what is a think tank? A think tank provides, um, you know, expert commentary on some important issue, whether that be a political or an economic issue or tech, you know, technology related issue or or really whatever. You can name a million different important things that we need to be concerned about. Well, you know, these are supposed to be the smartest of the smartest, you know, the people with the fanciest degrees, the people who have been studying these issues for their entire life. You know, they have PhDs or doctorates and have written important things about, you know, these these things and are supposed to be real experts on the field. And think tanks also act as a a sort of a reserve of uh, or holding tank for people who are going to work in government or people who used to work in government. So it's kind of like a pit spot, a pit spot, stop or a rotational spot for government employees just think of how many people from the think tank community work for the biden administration almost all of them were you know come from some think tank and then think about where liz cheney is most likely going to go uh you know after you know with the end of her political career she's probably going to work for a think tank or a or a uh uh, an arms dealer or most likely a think tank that's funded by an arms dealer. I mean, we'll we'll wait and see where she ends up, but I mean, that's that's usually kind of the the path for government employees. Now, the problem is that these people working in these think tanks can easily be compromised through bribery. And, you know, whether that's just direct funding or if that's career promises and um you know, it's also common for think tanks to 
employ lobbyists and even draft legislations. Um, in the think tank community, public disclosures of funding sources are not legally required. Um, for example, and I'm also I'm going to read from a Ben Freeman uh, paper that he had wrote. So from 2007 to 2015, the Heritage Foundation received at least $5.8 million from a Korean weapons manufacturer whose autonomous weapon system was promoted by heritage experts. So, you know, you, know, you, re you receive weapons from some latest uh, gadget or you receive money from a company that's, that's uh, creating the latest gadget and, and basically the think tank is going to publish a paper on why this will change the future of warfare and why the government needs to um, create an arms contract or pursue an arms contract of millions and millions of dollars. So it's like advertising. Basically, it's advertising. They're PR firms. Now, um, it is true, though. Most think tanks, if you go on their website, not everything is is um, hidden. You know, there's obviously trends, but most think tanks, it's actually pretty easy to find who their funders are. You just go to their on their website on their about us. Um, it's pretty easy to find who their donors are. So you'll just see it's not even really hidden. It's an open secret to phrase the to steal the name from the website, but it's an open secret. You can go on most of these think tanks websites and be like, okay, we're funded by Lockheed Martin. We're funded by uh, Braytheon. A lot of times the foreign governments though are not on that. We're funded by Saudi Arabia because that doesn't that's not a great look. At least like Lockheed Martin is an American company. So there's actually this New York Times um, investigative uh, piece from years ago that I found in the in the archives, and um, the New York Times can actually do very when it comes to investigative journalism. These major news outlets, when they want to do like really hardcore investigative journalism, they're the best at doing it. You know, they have the resources and then the the talent to to do this really well. Um when they focus their energy on something they want to do. And the New York Times um, had a big piece called Foreign Powers by Influence at Think Tanks, and it's from 2014. And really the whole, pay, the whole article is about how um, think tanks just don't disclose the terms of their agreements that they've reached with foreign governments. They're just not disclosed. And they're also not registered under FARA. So according to their list and ones that they brought up that um, the, Brookings, the Brookings Institution, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. CSIS, we read them all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Center, the Center for Global Development, the Atlantic Council, um, all of these think tanks. And that's not even including like the conservative ones like right. the Heritage Foundation and the Hudson Institute, which are also mm -hmm. receive a lot of funding ones. Um, these are more of like the center moderate Brookings Institute's kind of neoconservative-ish. Uh, Atlantic Council's like very neoliberal. Center for Global Development is these, you know, they're kind of more like, you know, we're just straight shooters, not partisan. But, mm -hmm. you know, they're all receiving money from foreign governments to write favorable pieces, which I think should be illegal. Um, yeah. For foreign, like for foreign and foreign countries to to lobby 
sure. Uh, in if, any if way, if you want to write something favorable about that, that's favorable towards a, any particular country, you should be free to do that. But you shouldn't be solicited to do that by anyone. Yeah, it's one of the, it's one of because you know the history of foreign lobbying really comes from our diversity. You know, it's um our our diversity of the country where right. immigrants from the early 20th century, whether they be from Eastern Europe or or Italy or, or Ireland or, or really wherever, immigrants who were coming to the country who still had a connection with the home country or the motherland would lobby on behalf of their motherland or their home country. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the, the history starts. Um, just think about like one of the most... Uh, powerful but small communities in the country are Cuban Americans, and think about like the weight that Cuban Americans have in Florida. Right. I mean, it's basically all Cuban Americans in Florida. <laughs> well, at least Southern Florida. That is, Cuban Cubans and Puerto Ricans. Yeah, <laughs> Venezuelans, freedom lovers. That's what I call them. Freedom lovers. Free. God, I love Florida. Um, but um, this New York Times article, so as a major, most of the money comes from countries in Europe, the Middle East, and elsewhere in Asia, uh, specifically the oil-producing nations in the UAE, Qatar, and Norway, and it takes many forms. The UAE, a major supporter of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Quietly, the UAE is very big into uh, funding think tanks. Um, they fund the Aspen Institute as well. The Aspen Institute is another one of them that's not listed in this article. Uh, quietly provided a donation of more than one million to help the build uh, to help build the center's gleaming gleaming new glass and steel headquarters, not from the White House. Qatar or Qatar, um, the small but wealthy Middle East nation, agreed last year to make a 14.8 million four-year donation to Brookings, which has helped fund a Brookings affiliate in Qatar and a project on the United States relations with the Islamic world. In their contracts and internal documents, however, foreign governments are often explicit about what they expect from the research groups they finance. Um, and then this article goes on to say, since 2011, at least 64 foreign governments have contributed to a group of 28 major U.S.-based research organizations. And then I quote, what little information the organization volunteer about their donors, along with the public records and lobbying reports filed with American officials by foreign representatives, indicates a minimum of $92 million in contributions or commitments from overseas government's interests over the last four years. It's <clears throat> a lot of money. It's, that's a crazy amount of money. It's a lot of money. And, and, and we're not even just talking how about... how many... Yeah. It, it's, how many groups? 64 foreign governments contributing to almost 30 major U.S. You know, research organizations? So that doesn't, that doesn't even include the Israeli lobbies. The reason why that these think tanks, they invest so much... I mean, these foreign governments invest so much in um, in think tanks. It's because it's easier. It's a lot easier to get access to some guy writing articles in his, you know, basement than Lindsey Graham. Which 
it probably is not that hard to get access to Lindsey Graham. You just make a phone you know, call. He's, he's open. You put on a weird accent. I bet if you call Lindsey Graham's office and you're just like, Hello, can I speak to Lindsey Graham? I want to tell you about a project and I'm going to contribute to campaign. Would you commit to help our defense and give us uh, $2 billion for uh, new missiles? <laughs> like, sure, why not? Well, you ever What's hear the story about me? the prank callers? <laughs> the, pr- the prank callers who uh, pretended yeah. they were like a Turkish delegation. Yeah, and Lindsey Graham's like, "It's Turkey. Why didn't you tell me?" <laughs> well, hello, Mister Erdogan. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know I'm kind of like butchering the story a little bit, but it was along the lines of there was a prank. So someone was pretending that he was Erdogan or like a high official from Turkey. Yeah, one of one of the members of his cabinet, I think. Yeah, I gotta look that up, but. Yeah, um, you can't underestimate the the amount of um, weight that is put into influencing, uh, you know, American intellectuals who work, who, who really bridge the gap between academia and foreign policy or in, right. and policy decisions. Uh, Norway is actually highlighted a lot in this article as well um, about getting, about um, directing money to the, um, the Center for Global Development to pass um like a an energy bill so it's like it's really um it's really quite fascinating to see to you know to dive deeper into you know how exactly policy decisions are made because there's just so many different factors which include the world the world who's who is uh trying to get access to the the people who hold the keys to you know the most powerful government in the world you know you can say that we're an empire but sometimes we're kind of more like a mercenary, like a giant mercenary. A cell sword, yeah. Uses, a cell sword. Yeah, for sure. Definitely are. I mean, all right. So thanks for, for you know, kind of filling us in on, on you know, a bunch of these things, including think tanks um, and, you know, Farah and lobbying. And, you know, it becomes clear that there's a lot of shit that's going on, sometimes in plain sight and sometimes slightly, you know, under the table. But... Lots of different governments are influencing the United States, no less, you know, just to bring this back to Taiwan, Taiwan has its own set of uh, um, actors that are uh, working to, you know, promote favorable conditions for Taiwan. And I just wanted to think about that a little bit because, again, coming from my argument that I've been making the entire podcast, whether or not Pelosi goes to Taiwan, all this other shit is still happening, Right. And so I want to focus again on that event, you know, and and the current political situation in Taiwan. And I want to talk about something that I think is could be applied here. And it's it's the Streisand effect. You know, I've been thinking about how China handled this Pelosi trip. And you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, regardless of if she went, you know, between all these diplomats and lobbies and think tanks, you know, the U.S. and Taiwan, were going to talk and influence one another one way or another. And. Yes, just to bring it up again, there's a wait to, you know, an official visit from the Speaker of the House. And yes, you know, it could signal, you know, certain things about the relationship of the U.S. and Taiwan. And also important, it, it just pissed off China, you know, which is something to consider when making this choice. Um, but ultimately, I think if if China would have just, like, let it go, we probably would have seen a lot less emphasis on the relationship to Taiwan Think the Streisand effect here, right? So the Streisand effect is 
a phenomenon whereby the attempt to suppress something only brings more attention or notoriety to it. So here, China wants to prevent the U.S. from getting closer to Taiwan and thus under, undermine the One China policy. And their reaction before the visit was made, you know, made the visit itself more prominent. Remember there that thinly veiled threat of like shooting down Pelosi's plane or whatever um, and scrambling jets and shit like, you know, they didn't have to say that. <laughs> like they didn't. That was their choice to do that and say that because they wanted to act tough. Um, but I think that made it more of a big deal than it needed to be, uh, which which then I think made it impossible for China just to chill out about the whole situation. And then after her visit, China goes nuts start shooting rockets and artillery in the general direction of Taiwan, right? And and that had the effect of actually halting some trade. This is something I talked about with Joe on on uh, our episode together, but um you know, it was kind of like a quasi embargo because these private shipping companies didn't want to fuck around and have their ships accidentally blown up by, you know, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, uh there was actually like an economic slowdown that that resulted of it. Um which, you know, on the China side, it's like, great, we just showed off our power. We, you know, uh, we showed them who's boss. We don't, we protested and we didn't look like, you know, weaklings because Pelosi went to Taiwan. Uh, but their aggression there itself had a Streisand effect, right? People were worried, myself included, about a Chinese invasion. And in the midst of the, you know, Ukraine crisis, which, was, which is still ongoing and unfolding, Folks are now seriously considering preemptive measures to arm Taiwan. There was an uh, 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 article I read today on foreignpolicy.com that, that it's titled uh, Taiwan Needs Weapons for Day One of Chinese Invasion. Uh, subtitle, unlike Ukraine, the island will be very hard to arm during a conflict. And, you know, the basic premise of this, uh, I am now wondering if foreignpolicy.com is getting foreign uh, lobbying money, <laughs> just to think about this. Um, but, you know, it's basically arguing that we should arm Taiwan because they don't have enough munitions to hold off China. Uh, and it uses Ukraine and our response to helping them with munitions as a good example of how a strong supply of munitions is needed to combat a major power. And so that's the, the basic premise of the article. Um, and, and in it, they write, you know, certain th- um, issues that are present, like problems like red tape and, you know, uh, uh, industrial capacity to even just COVID-19 pandemic, it created uh, like a $14 billion like logjam of arms transfers that were intended for Taiwan since 2019. So that they're not getting the weapons that were already on the books for them to get. And it also brings up this new act, which is the Taiwan Policy Act, which I'm not sure if we already covered in this episode or not. Um, it's yet to be passed into law, but it's it's looking to transition Taiwan into a foreign military financing recipient for the first time since Chiang Kai-shek. And that would mean that Taiwan could get four and a half billion dollars in military aid rather than, you know, having to source and, and uh, uh, pay for all this equipment themselves. And it also makes them uh, eligible for other uh, equipment transfers that would make it f- make them getting the weapons much faster than getting it on the traditional market. So, you know, they're arguing here that if enacted, this bill also expedites shipping, you know, to Taiwan uh, at the expense of, of other customers of ours, of our weapons. So, you know, 
this is something that that foreign policy is is, is saying that that we should do, and it, I find it kind of hard to believe that we would even have this article in the first place if China didn't start shooting a bunch of rockets into the sea after Pelosi visited Taiwan. You know, so he, here's the blowback there, and you know, most of all, this whole thing was the, the China's like fit about this is to prevent foreign diplomats, specifically U.S. foreign diplomats, from going to Taiwan and strengthening those ties. And now, plenty of pe- plenty of diplomats are going. Uh, just this week, a delegation of U.S. lawmakers went to Taiwan on Wednesday, and it was an unannounced trip. There were eight lawmakers. They were led by Stephanie Murphy, uh, a Democrat from Florida who's on the Armed Services Committee, and they're going to. And they I think they stayed until Friday. I'm not sure if they left or not. Um, but they said, and I'll quote them: "The delegation will meet with uh, senior Taiwan leaders to discuss U.S.-Taiwan relations, regional security, trade, and investment." global supply chains, and other significant issues of mutual interest. This is the sixth visiting U.S. delegation after China's military exercises in August, in early August, once again demonstrating the high importance and support that the United States attaches to Taiwan from local governments to the federal government, from the executive branch to the congressional branch. So literally from the words of this U.S. delegation themselves, this is the sixth time the U.S., has sent a delegation to Taiwan in direct response for China's military uh, uh, exercises. They're, they're the fit that they threw <laughs> um, because because Pelosi wanted to go to Taiwan. So, and, and it's not just the U.S. either. There's plenty of other delegations from other countries, notably the French delegation. Five of them uh, came this, this past Tuesday for a six-day visit, and that was their fourth delegation um, uh, that was sent to, to Taiwan this year, and it's also the largest European visit uh, on the island since those exercises that China did. So, blowback much, right? I mean, it's <laughs> it's kind of crazy. So, pulling this back, it seems like actions and counteractions that are going on on both sides, China and uh, the U.S., feels like you know we're ramping towards this. Every action that's been taken has, has had a, a certain amount of blowback that feels like we're pushing, you know, uh, the risk of Chinese invasion. So what's what's your opinion, Henry? What do you think? What do you think China's going to do? Well, first and foremost, I just want to state that I'm willing to die for Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Are you? Are you willing to die for Nancy? I'm I'm willing to die for Nancy Pelosi. Um. So in terms of just like the Streisand effect, like how this cascaded. Well, I think. One of the reasons why that one of the reasons I think that, you know, we kind of stated earlier, which is a theme, is that a lot of these congressional these these uh, uh, Congress critters, they're going there for like lobbying reasons because of the outreach campaigns. I don't know if it had necessarily anything to do with like the direct response, but I will say that the U.S. is taking a harder line on China since they've been tacitly supporting russia and the war in ukraine mm-hmm. um so that could have something to do with that but in terms of like do i think china is going to be invading taiwan i don't know i mean i don't think any time i my proves my personal opinion like my um what i think but again i could be proven wrong uh, right now i do not expect china to invade taiwan at least within the next two years um nevertheless you know the recent chinese military drills 
um, in and around Taiwan's waters have definitely heightened the likelihood of that happening. But the reason why I don't think there will be an invasion is because China is going through a period of slow economic growth. Um, you know, you talked about this with Joe the other day, right? Uh, China's yeah. economy and how yeah. it's it, they're, they're, it, they have a lot it's of going in the wrong issues. direction. <laughs> it's going in the wrong direction. Um, I think their economic growth would be further compromised by the you know destruction of of just regional supply chains. Uh, you know, if there was a, a, a cross strait conflict, and here's something that Joe always says, you know, and, and which is true, China is the most globalized country in the world. You know, they don't want to deal with international sanctions that would be placed on on uh, China in response of an invasion. I also think that you know the, the policy is pretty clear that a Chinese intervention will be met with some type of U.S. reaction. I don't necessarily think that it would be a direct military intervention, but I think they would find some ways to get arms there or some type of sanctions, or there would be a consequence, probably a reaction from uh, most of the Western world. Um, You know, the West, you know, collectively has banded together to fund this war in Ukraine, and, and it's kind of pumped enough weapons and and um, um, you know, mercenaries. If you if you believe those reports, that the Ukrainians are able to kind of maintain and even uh, launch counterattacks against the Russians right now. Um, you know, what can they do in the case of Taiwan? I know the logistics are a lot harder to get funds and weapons to an island, but you know, I mean, will they have that same collective effort? I think they they could, and probably China doesn't want to. Uh, take that 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 gamble but when it comes down to it i don't think the chinese population is willing to take the uh accept the humanitarian and also the economic cost of this um that being said i can definitely see it happening you know if you look at the chinese tabloids it's full of just nationalistic warmongering um i guess you know right now the common war gaming scenarios that uh, you know, they, they they kind of assume that the Chinese invasion would come primarily uh, uh, via the west of Taiwan, where the beaches are flatter, um, where it's easier to facilitate an amphibious landing. Those areas, mm-hmm. like the west of Taiwan, is a lot more fortified. But I mean, that's the place where you're realistically going to be able to do a landing like that and invade. Um, but then there's also the chance that. China completely circles the island and enforces a blockade, which would cut off Taiwan, Taiwan from, uh, Taiwan. you know, their Taiwan, Taiwan, um, so Taiwan Lannister, uh, <laughs> they would cut off Taiwan from, um, you know, their security partners and, and, uh, mostly probably the U S and, and Japan would probably serve as the Pakistan, right? Just like how yeah, Poland I mean, is serving as a Pakistan now. May, okay. Maybe, but. I don't know. I think that I think the uh, encirclement of of the uh, of the island is is less likely for me because while China technically has the largest navy, it's shit, you know. And and they count all of their merchant vessels as like part uh, that they can in, you know utilize them. I don't think that they have the I don't think they have the capacity to to totally block off a um, with naval vessels. That is what they could do is just say we're going to be shooting rockets into the water 
and that would do what what happened uh, just in August, which is where a lot of private companies decide not to go to Taiwan or not to trade with Taiwan because it's just too dangerous, right? But I don't I don't think they're going to stand against like U.S. Um, navy naval power in the region. I mean, we just we regularly move through the the Taiwan Strait, you know, with our warships, and they're much much better. So unless they're willing to like blow up U.S. warships to blockade Taiwan, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, I think you have to take in mind that the election, the Taiwanese election is coming up in 2024. And the current vice president, uh, uh, Lai Cheng-Ti, mm-hmm. he's considered to be the more favorable candidate towards independence and you know he's expected to win the the ruling the ruling party in taiwan is the dpp the democratic progressive party and right now they have pretty firm control over the the federal government there the you know the 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 state in terms of the presidency and the parliament Um, interestingly enough the kuomintang which was chiang kai-shek's party Mm-hmm. is uh is is labeled the pro china party that's funny and yeah they're they're kind of they're slandered i mean it's more complicated than that i think it's certain factions that are that have a lot more china uh business interest in china so that's they're more favorable in like an actual one china policy but the chiang kai the kuomintang was like the 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 nationalist government who would you know, commit atrocities against the against the communist in China back yeah. in the, <laughs> the 20, you know the 30s, um, but they're 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 labeled as the pro-China. I don't know how true that is. I I would need to do more research to to, but um, the DPP is more of like the pro-Japan party, but the Kuomintang actually has more of a foothold in like local government. So it's kind of like red state and blue states. If you want to say the Kuomintang is a red state where. You know, they have more uh, control over like provincial governments than um, than the DPP, and then there's another party too. Um, that's like a communist party. Um, yeah, like a communist party. So, but those the Kuomintang and the DPP are the two uh, major players, major major political parties there. Um, but I think it's worth going over the history here because it may sound confusing, and I think it will add some context. Um. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. 
That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. So here's something that's, that's, that's ironic about this, is that, you know, we all know that the current government of China will, will break diplomatic relations with any country that, that recognizes Taiwan or, uh, you know, the Republic of China, the ROC. Just look at John Cena. They'll break. Yep. They'll break ties with any pro wrestler. Yep. <laughs> um, we should do a skit where we just like talk in Mandarin how we apologize for recognizing <laughs> Taiwan. But a good commercial be, idea. <laughs> yeah, it used to be the other way around. So when Taiwan or the ROC was recognized as China and the UN because we used to just call Taiwan the People's Republic of China, China. Like, oh, that's China. The other China is not real. Um, they used to do the same thing. They would break off diplomatic ties with the country if they recognized the the PRC, the People's Republic of China, the government right now, as as China. So it was a, it was a reverse relationship where if anyone like recognized the old, you know, Mao's China, then the, you know, Taiwan or would have a hissy fit and like, no, we're China. What do you, we're China. They're not China. So, um, you know, Taiwan was really a nation that was divided uh, during the Cold War. The, the initial division was only supposed to be temporary, but reunification became impossible due to the polarization of the Cold War and also just the financial backing and the military aid that both sides received from the United States and the Soviet Union. So it made the conflict, it turned the conflict into a permanent stalemate. Um, you know, despite this, the the reunification is still part of the founding vision of both uh, China and Taiwan, both governments. It's in like their constitution the Chinese claim to Taiwan in their mind is historic and it's, it's uh, ethno-linguistic. You know, about 98% of the population are Han Chinese. They speak a local dialect of Mandarin. They observe Chinese uh, ceremonial rituals. They're, they're Chinese. And if you go back in time, you know, there's been this significant number of Chinese settlements in Taiwan since the 13th century. However, it was annexed by the Japanese in the early 20th century following China's defeat in the first Sino-Japanese War. And it was part of those, you know, unequal treaties, which in reality was a series of treaties where they were forced to concede, um, you know, their a lot of their territories to or their sovereignty rights to uh, uh, the British Empire, the French, the Germans, the U.S., Russia, Japan— Everyone carved up Japan, um, not Japan. Everyone carved up China like a like a Thanksgiving turkey. So the existence of Taiwan as a sovereign state is a symbol 
of Chinese weakness. It's a symbol of a China that's still being exploited by the West. And, you know, we talk about nationalism all the time. The One of the driving narratives in, in a, the, the, one of the, the driving characteristics or main characteristics of like a nationalist uh, narrative is this humiliation story. You know, like, oh, we were wronged. We need, it's payback time. Like that's the, that was like one of the key um, in, in German, yeah, key tropes like World War Two, Nazi Germany. Like we were, I mean, they were really wronged by the Treaty of Versailles. They really were. A lot of times it's true, like their humiliation story. You know, sometimes people were, there's groups that are collectively uh, experience some type of horrible injustice. And, but then that's used. It's like, we can receive this injustice and this payback. So the existence of Taiwan is in that, is in that context where just by its mere existence as an independent country, that's China's sovereign territory, which was taken to them, taken from them, um, you know, a hundred years ago or 120 years ago at this point. So, um, if you, if you go back after Japan surrendered in World War II, the Allies gave the nationalist side of the government, so the government of China that we recognized, to Taiwan. And the, no, excuse me, I said that wrong. The na- they gave Taiwan to the nationalist uh, of China, so Chiang Kai-shek's China, and the nationalists there, the Kuomintang at the time, so not to be, I mean, they're the same party, but they had different goals, I guess, they were gangsters, um, you know, they took control of the island, uh, uh, when they took control of the island, they seized property, they essentially looted the country, which caused, you know, very big backlashes, um, it led to a horrible massacre of over 20,000 people. Um, the, the Chiang Kai-shek government, when they, when they were kind of enforcing their monopoly of violence over Taiwan, it wasn't pretty. It was very ugly. It was, it was very brutal. Um, they regularly would just like extort people, seize property. And when people <clears throat> reacted to it, they would kill them. So, but it was also kind of a normal part of like the protracted struggle between the the different factions in in, in China, uh, between the CPP and the Kuomintang. Both sides were extremely brutal to each other and also to civilians. Um, you know, there these when you think about it, these wars in, in Eastern Asia between the 1930s and the 1950s were just extremely violent. Between you know, the Japanese invasion of China in Korea, I mean, like the you know, Japanese occupations and their, uh, their their treatment of colonial subjects and their invasions of cities like Nanjing and, and um, their carpet bombings uh, to the to the Korean War, to um, the Chinese Civil War, where both sides were just you know, regularly massacring like protesters and civilians, um, you know, repeated civilian massacres by military police, horrible, horrible gang violence, uh, mass exiles, 
you name it, like atrocities in, in, in Eastern Asia happened between the 19, really the early uh, 1900s to the 1950s. Just a brutal, a brutal time period. An absolutely brutal, brutal time period. Um, but, you know, this trend overall continued. The, you know, the nationalist side loses the war in 1949. And, you know, they make a full retreat to the island of Taiwan. They set up a new government. Mind you, they retreat with the declared intention of retaking the mainland whenever they first had the opportunity. Meanwhile, Mao's faction, you know, the Chinese government as we know it today, the People's Republic of China, they say the same thing. They pledge to take Taiwan as soon as they finish setting up power in southern China, thereby, uh, you know, com- you know, completing their revolution and ending the 100 years of humiliation. You know, this would finally end the unequal treaty that gave Taiwan to Japan. But there are some other things that come up first, namely the Korean War. Chinese intervention on behalf of the DPRK in North Korea, in, in, in the Korean War, which is North Korea, um, you know, in November of 1950, caused the U.S. The, the blowback was that the U.S. Uh, you know further supported you know the nationalist side of the Chinese government, the you know the the island, the government that was established, the refugee government in Taiwan, which really ultimately just left left a permanent standstill in the war. One side really wasn't able to conquer the other. And it indefinitely just post plans to postponed plans to bring the civil war to a conclusion. Now it's important to note that the the goal of unification has been deeply embedded in you know not only the the national identity of China but also Taiwan. Um, you know the the claim is written in both of their constitutions. Uh, the PRC and the ROC, and it's in the flag, it's in their coinage, it's in their history text. Both sides have this, um, and then both Chiang Kai-shek and his son, uh, you know, Chiang Ching-ko, his son continued his regime kind of like North Korea. Um, you know, they both believed in the one China policy until the day they died. For example, they declined the chance to. Um, you know, retain their membership in the UN General Assembly as an independent Taiwan if that meant they had to renounce their claim as, uh, you know, being part of China. So in Taiwan's National Assembly, um, the, 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 the Chiang dictatorship, they symbolically represented provinces in the mainland. So in, they would... Taiwan's National Assembly, like, yeah, we represent Beijing and, and all these governments. That's our territory. Shanghai and all of them, yeah. Yeah, Shanghai. And then the opposite what happens. China's delegation represented Taiwan. So, um, and just looking back at the history, this is not, the, I don't think this is really the policy anymore. Um, maybe it is more for the CPP, uh, more so than Taiwan, just because it's more realistically possible for the CPP to do this but you know through the 50s and 60s and 70s really before Nixon 
uh, visited Mal and, and kind of made peace with them, um, it was a zero-sum game, meaning that the victory would come with the elimination of the other government. So you have to take in mind, you have to take this in mind, um, you know, about the, the relationship between Taiwan and China is that, you know, for three decades of Taiwan's existence, uh, you know, both leaders of the civil war were still the main power figures in Mao and in Chiang Kai-shek. They never went away. Like they were the leaders for 30 more years. Um, Chiang Kai, both of their governments still exist. Essentially. I mean, both governments are, are very different from what they were, but for 30 years after the Chinese civil war lasted, like their, their institutions still existed. And, um, you know, that kind of, um, um, turned the warlike conditions into a status quo. And, you know, that status quo justified both of those authoritative governments because, you know, the Taiwan was a dictatorship until 1997, until, um, you know, the, the Chiang Kai-shek dynasty died out. So, um, you know, there were two cross-strait crises. One was in 1954. Uh, another one was in 1958. Yet, you know, an invasion never happened. And, you know, the reason was because the balance of power was just too strong for either country to really make a move. So when Nixon initiated detente with the CPP, her Mao, she's not a bad guy, Mao. Hey, um, apparently uh, Pat Buchanan hated China and he was forced to write like Nixon's speech and he hated, he was disgusted by t- writing that speech. Hey, um, write something nice about Mao, please. <laughs> Mao, uh, he's a good guy. So He's not a um, shaw, but he's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's cooler than I expected. I don't care. Um, so, yeah, when the Cold War ended in in uh, in Asia, um, so the Cold War ended in Asia 20 years before the Cold War ended in Europe, this opened up the door for, I guess, new ideas to, to potentially break the, the deadlock. And, and um, you know, after the CPP gained U.S. US diplomatic recognition, the, the strategy on the, on the side of Taiwan had to change. And, and really, since then, you see this constant type of uh, rethawing and freezing of their relationships. Because right now, like China, I mean, Taiwan's number one trading partner is in, is in China. Like Taiwan has huge business interests in Taiwan, in China. And I was speaking to a China expert, like a real China expert. Um, and she was telling me like, hey, Taiwan, China's never going to invade Taiwan. And the reason why is because they're, all, they're both going to... Um, they're both going to appeal to their populations with nationalistic rhetoric, but this is a game they've been playing for a very long time, and they've they've kind of mastered it. Where Taiwan is always going to send signals at the last minute that they're willing to play ball with with China's one policy, a one a one China policy. So that's kind of where I. Uh, where I stand with it, that 
this game's been going on for a while, and um, I don't think either governments really think that they're going to achieve like a, a zero sum victory. So I don't, I, I don't necessarily, I'm just not, I'm not convinced, but Hey, I can be completely wrong. I've been completely wrong about a lot of things. And there's just, uh, I, I, feel, I feel similarly to you. I think that there just has to be some reason why not keeping the status quo is better than just doing what they're already been doing for several years. You know, it would have to be, there would have to be some wild benefit. Well, it could be a peace. There, there may be a peaceful solution. What, like reunification? <laughs> yeah, reunification peacefully. I mean, that's what it. that's what uh, China released a white paper the other day. Well, a couple of weeks ago, about their goal of peaceful reunification, and you know, they state their claim. I don't have the white paper up, but it makes a lot of the homages of of, uh, of things that we just talked about, like China's claim to Taiwan. Um, it was stolen from them, and. And all this, and at some point, you know, You're just too. Different I think you got to right throw. Now. You have to throw. You have to throw out like the language and culture thing, like like off the, like out of the dialogue. Because I think at some point that doesn't. That's not the only thing that creates national identity. Right. Exactly. They're, They're just uh, so I think different. National. Yeah. Well, national identity. I think at the end of the day, the, I mean, language and culture is obviously a big part of it. But I think it comes down to loyalty to the state, mm-hmm. and it's like, are you what? What state are you loyal to? Because if you look at Russia and Ukraine, it's something that we've talked about a lot. Is that you know a lot of the gut people, and you know like the Western Ukrainians, it's like it's like a small part of the country, like in Western Ukraine and Galatia, who right. are like really really hardcore, uh, kind of separated from the Slavic population. Um, most of the people fighting this war are Russians. Uh, on both sides or some speak some form of Russian or, or speak kind of a dialect of Russian. And, you know, it's more than just, um, I think the Russians misjudged that how many people actually really identified as Ukrainian. So Mm -hmm. just because like there's a common language and stuff doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be one overall national identity uh, that people are going to always appeal to. Like things, things change. Um, and in this case, in this God. case, it's like, it's it's like Taiwan is an island, right? It's like not physically attached to China, so there's that like geographic separation on top of the, you know, political uh, uh, um, separations between the two. It's it's reminds me of like Cyprus, you know, like Cyprus is like jointly owned by I think it's Greece and Turkey, right? It's like one island that's not touching either of those countries, but both of them are fighting over it. In this case, there are there is no like CCP in Taiwan, and there is no ROC in China. They're wholly and distinctly different, and separated, quite literally, by water. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of the the interest in reunification from the Taiwanese side is is is, is business related. Um, but again, there's there's people who in Taiwan. I was like reading like a blog post, so 
I don't know, it was kind of anonymous and anecdotal, but it was someone from Taiwan who was like, I don't, it's like people are saying that the Chinese are at our doorstep. I don't know, know anything about that. It seems pretty normal here. Like, I don't, I'm not, I guess this person wasn't very political, um, but it was just saying like, hey, like we don't really give a shit about politics here. Like that was, that was kind of their, the yeah. theme of it. And um, they're not like scared of a Chinese invasion. So, I mean, those are my two cents. Hopefully we learned, we taught, we shared some knowledge today. I think this episode was a little all over the place. <laughs> just a little bit. A little bit all over the place. (laughs) Yeah, getting back into the swing of it. Okay. Um, We are, it is Saturday at 5.45 p.m. I'm going to watch college football for the rest of the day. Um, (laughs) Shall we conclude this? Yep. Sounds good. All right. All right. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to another episode of, I almost said football. Thank you, thank you so much for listening to another episode of football, uh, of bro history. <laughs> it's a pleasure having you. And um, if you want to support the show, rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. Rate and review it. If you're on Spotify, rate it. If you're on Apple devices, rate and review it. And then if you want to support us further, join our Patreon Anything to add? To the low cost of five dollars, you can get us to <laughs> speak favorably about the country. Do you have a nation choice. state? Do you have a nation <laughs> state? If you have a nation state, then for five dollars, all we will do is, um, you know, promulgate foreign pop propaganda for you. Doesn't matter. You could be Eritrea or North Korea. We'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> North Korea gives us $5 from North Korea pledge. Hey, you know who's really misjudged and is really smart? Kim Jong-un. Do you know who gets a bad rap? Who? And who was a great film director? Like, just one of the great film directors of all time? Kim Jong-il. Kim Kim Jong-il. You know, Kim Jong-il, before he died, he, like, reverted to, like, not even running the country. He was just, like, making propaganda films. Right, Um, he's just doing art. He was just doing art. He was one of the great artists of all time. Right. And he's the only person in the history of golf to uh, do 18 to holes in hits, one. To, I think it was six hold, holes in one, but he's <laughs> something very special. Um, so um, God bless North Korea and um, the uh, Kim dynasty. <laughs> all right. Peace. Peace.